Thankfully, healthcare practitioners who behave unprofessionally are the exception rather than the rule. However, the fact that about 1,200 of you are joining WIHI today and that number continues to climb and about 2,800 of you enrolled in this program tells us this topic hits a nerve or strikes a chord, however you want to say it, or resonates for many. Maybe it's because one or two or three individuals out of line can have a significant and negative impact on colleagues and effective working relationships. I sometimes think of this as the power of one. And not nearly enough is happening to address these situations, so people are looking for support and solutions. Welcome to this edition of WIHI. I titled Unprofessional Behavior Not Permitted Here. I'm your host and moderator, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications, and we're zeroing in on something that's about personality, psychology, organizational culture, power, pecking orders, rainmaking, and this may be where we're finally uh, getting some traction, teamwork and patient safety, two critical elements that we're going to be discussing as soon as I introduce our guests, and we've got a powerful team with us today. All right, now to introductions and a reminder that there's much more information about each of our guests on the WIHI webpages. Each of these individuals has impressive backgrounds and bios. On the phone is Dr. Barry Silbal. He's the CEO of the American College of Physician Executives. He's got several top-line issues in his sites right now, and this issue of disruptive, unprofessional behavior is one of them. Welcome, Barry. Thank you, Matt. Okay, good to have you. Barry, we were wondering, where are you calling from today? What city or town? I'm calling from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Okay. Well, good to have you. Uh, Dr. Jerry Healy is here with me in the studio. He holds the Emeritus Gerald B. Healy Chair in Otar Laryngology. I said it, at Children's Hospital in Boston. He's that hospital's former chief surgeon, and he's now a senior fellow at IHI. Welcome, Jerry. Thank you, Madge. It's great to be here and appreciate the opportunity to interact with my colleagues on this important subject. All right, great. Now, Jerry led me to Charlotte Guglielmi. Uh, she is the perioperative nurse specialist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Charlotte is currently also the president of the Association of Perioperative Registered Nurses, also known as AORN. Is that what people say these days? Yes, it is. Okay, welcome, Charlotte. Thank you, Madge. And it's also a pleasure to be with these colleagues as well. Okay. Kevin Stewart is a practicing geriatrician and deputy CEO of the Winchester and Eastleigh National Health Service Trust in the United Kingdom. He and Dr. Ron Wyatt, a primary care physician with the Huntsville Hospital System, joining us from Alabama, both used some of their time this past year as IHI fellows, along with Jerry Healy, to do some important research and writing on this topic today. So welcome, Kevin, who's in the studio. Yeah, thanks, Marge. It's uh, great to be here. And Ron Wyatt is on the phone. Welcome, Ron. Hi, Mash. Thank you. It's uh, All right. an honor to be here. Thank okay. you. Fabulous. Okay, so we've got a really strong group here, and I think that sort of uh, matches the topic at hand. And um, so what we're going to do is, Jesse mentioned, typically we keep the chat and uh, the chat section kind of closed off for just about 20 minutes or so to get the lay of the land. We'll probably go just a little bit longer, more like a half an hour. Uh, that will 
part of what I'm trying to do is uh, let this uh, program breathe a little bit today, but we'll surely have plenty of time for your questions and comments. So um, what I'm going to do first is I'm going to go around. I, I told my guests sort of with a round robin of sorts. It'll sort of get them all on the map with some of their high-level thinking. I'd like to ask each of them to tell me or tell all of you why should other why do you care about this issue of disruptive behavior or unprofessional conduct however you want to define it and why should others in healthcare care about it too so in some ways i'm looking for your strongest most persuasive statement barry silba why don't i begin with you okay um, we care about this because first of all it's been ignored for far too long and it's called time to call attention to it and start solving this problem it's a barrier to patient safety it's unprofessional and it wastes an organization's energy and resources when it's a chronic disease in an organization. We think others should feel the same way about this uh, at all levels of healthcare organizations, primarily because it, it inhibits effective teamwork and it has profound negative impact on satisfaction at work. Okay, thank you, uh, Dr. Barry Silva. All right, uh, Jerry Healy, why don't I turn to you next? Well, Barry certainly has uh, raised all the critical uh, bullet points, if you might uh, call them that, uh, why we should be concerned about this. But I believe that we must raise awareness of this issue uh, to all colleagues in healthcare. Uh, this issue impacts the entire cross-section of professional behavior of in individuals who are entrusted with the safe care of patients across the world every day. And to allow organizations to ignore this is inappropriate. And as Barry pointed out, is creates a serious patient safety issue. So I think people on the, on the line on this program and around the world who might be listening need to know they're not alone, that this is an issue that we're all concerned about. We are trying to share ideas and how to correct it, and I think the important thing that we're trying to accomplish today is to raise awareness and perhaps help people achieve some solutions. Charlotte, why don't I turn to you next, kind of just a sort of high-level sense of why, why, should, why are you thinking about this issue so much and why should others? And I agree with my colleagues, um, and I'm focusing on the patient safety issue and, again, the duration of how long this problem has lasted. We know the communication factors are the number one factor in when we review medical errors, and I believe any condition that impedes communication hampers our efforts to, prevent, to provide quality, safe patient care to our patients, and that's what we need to focus focus on. Okay. Kevin. Oh, thanks much. I'd add to what other folks have said because it's actually often not the behavior itself which causes most harm, it's the silence that follows it. And um, what, what, what we say is, what we permit, we promote. So by letting this happen, we're actually encouraging it. And I think everybody on the line and everybody in the room would say, it's time to stop it right now. Okay, so in just a minute, we'll find out what we, some of us mean by it and what we mean the behavior. Ron Wyatt, okay, uh, your, your kind of high level thought about why this is so important. Sure. I think uh, with any problem, at first you, you have to admit that, that it is a problem. Uh, so I'm speaking both as a victim and a perpetrator uh, of disruptive behavior. Uh, it is a patient safety issue. Uh, we overlook the fact that um, patients are part of the team, and it's behaviors that interfere with the team's ability to uh, do what the team has to do, not just in medicine, actually, but, but nursing, pharmacy, and outside of healthcare. So as the other panelists have said, uh, it's been ignored, uh, it's been explained away, excuses have been made, and I think we continue that same uh, 
path uh, to our demise and to the uh, demise of patient care and quality. Ron, I'm going to stay with you, uh, Dr. Ron Wyatt, and um, just because you kind of alluded to it, let's let's talk about how this gets a little bit more personal for everybody. So this is kind of my second round robin, and then we'll uh, start sort of laying out some terms and definitions. Why do you care about this in a more personal way? Well, I think because it, it is um, pervasive in medical training, and I'll speak just to the medical training, that even as a medical student, uh, that was when I first felt the impact of these behaviors that we'll talk about later um, and how that made me feel viscerally uh, and how helpless I felt uh, when I was on the receiving end of some of these behaviors. I saw how it impacted how I cared for patients, how I reported information about patients that were under uh, my care even as a medical student. And that becomes an imprint uh, so that when I became a resident then I repeated the same types of behaviors that I had been a victim of uh, all the way through being an attending physician in the academic uh, health center. It was only until I was in progressive medical leadership that I started to say, just, you know, wait a second. Uh, this is uh, more than just acting out. This affects patient safety, patient care. It affects uh, retention. It affects revenue. It affects every aspect of what we do in healthcare. Uh, and uh, when you sit across the room from a friend of yours who is a rainmaker and you have to um, you know, connect and then plan out a strategy for correction, uh, it, it does um, bring up a lot of emotions. Uh, and the result is you have to display a lot of courage uh, in saying uh, enough of this, uh, that we need to end this and realize that it's not just one hospital or one teaching program is throughout healthcare. Okay, thanks, Ron, Dr. Ron Wyatt. Jerry, how does this get? Does this get personal for you in in some way, or you have some sort of your kind of career experience in some ways that drives you here? Well, as a young physician, a young surgeon, uh, I was personally a victim of reverse what I call reverse role modeling, where uh, sort of abusive behavior was perpetrated upon me, and. Um, I think very strongly that once you cross the threshold as a healthcare professional, you assume a new obligation to society and to your fellow professionals. And uh, Jonas Salk said once, it's our obligation to be good ancestors. And what he really was saying in that quote was, it's our obligation to be good role models, to pass on the proper social and, uh, and character uh, behavior that we would want to receive as patients, as other professionals, etc. Uh, we also need to remember every one of us is going to be a patient at one point in our life or other. And uh, we want to have safe, good care by quality physicians who care and are sensitive to the obligations that they assume as physicians or as nurses or as other healthcare professionals. So uh, I see this as an obligation on the part of our professions to a deal with it. It's like an infection. Mm-hmm. We treat infections. This is an infection. And if the infection is spreading throughout the organism, we would stop it as doctors, as nurses, as other healthcare professionals. Why would we treat this any differently? So I think it's an obligation that we have to uh, society and to our uh, colleagues. Barry Sobal, thank you, Jerry. Uh, uh, Dr. Barry Sobal, is, is, does this have sort of a personal drive for you? Well, it does, Madge. Um, I was thinking about all of the different disruptive people that I've dealt with in my career, uh, either personally as a practicing internist hematologist or in leadership and management roles. Uh, most of them were physicians, but not all. 
but there's one in particular that was real personal for me. Uh, years ago when I was a young internist hematologist, um, one of my partners, a very well-respected physician in the community, loved by health system uh, leaders because of the, the high referral volume that he had, um, was, was something that um, is fairly common, I think, in, in the, the healthcare industry. Um, you would look at this individual and you'd, say, you'd see someone with a smile on his face, never out of control, uh, but what he would do with our office staff and with his partners was, um, was using rumors, uh, withholding information, dishonesty, ridicule of the office staff, and subtle threats to their careers as, as regular routine methods of intimidation. Um, what I saw was the effects on people's self-esteem and their ability or lack thereof uh, to contribute to high-quality patient care was just devastating. And personally, I think making people feel that way is not why any of us were put on this earth. Thank you very much for sharing that, Barry. Okay, Charlotte, and, and then Kevin, kind of what's kind of how does it get more personal? Well, like my colleagues, I have been the victim of uh, um, some disruptive behavior in my my years as a clinical nurse in the operating room. But I think more and more today, my job is to support safe and quality practice amongst um, my staff, in, as well as the education of, of my staff. And I've witnessed the uh, experiences and the destructive behaviors had on um, nursing staff, particularly very young nursing staff. And that worries me. It worries me a lot as we begin to um, sort of move forward to create a next generation of healthcare providers for us. Um, fortunately, I work in a facility that has a goal to achieve negative um, to zero tolerance of, of this kind of behavior, that this kind of behavior should be for us, shall we call it, a never event. And um, I believe that sharing in a learning culture, I need to share my experiences, and I do that in my role as ARN president. Okay, very good. Okay, Kevin, we'll, uh, we'll kind of just wrap this little part up with, with you and kind of how does this get more personal? Yeah, thanks much. Um, I guess like everybody else, as a young doctor, very early on after qualifying, I, I, I made some very serious mistakes that caused a lot of harm to a patient because I was afraid to approach my boss, who was an individual with a ferocious reputation. And um, I felt at the time, I thought that was just the way it had to be. I, th I just accepted that that was the culture and everybody else accepted that that was the culture. 25 years later, as, as, a, as, a, as a senior clinical leader, I saw young doctors like me still making the same mistakes because they were afraid to approach people. And I thought it's time we did something about this. Okay, very good. All right, thank you. That was uh, Dr. Kevin Stewart, and if you're just joining us, this is WIHI. I'm Madge Kaplan, and we're talking about unprofessional behavior by doctors, nurses, and others in healthcare. I'm going to turn back now to uh, Dr. Barry Silba, who's on uh, the phone from New Mexico. And Barry, I've given you the assignment to kind of do some uh, mapping of this. Uh, what do we mean when we're talking about unprofessional behavior? Uh, how? What do we know about how serious this is? and what's, what's the evidence of the impact? And I think uh, uh, Jerry will probably jump on uh, with, with some of that after you. But you want to start us off with some of that. Yeah, unprofessional behavior uh, is not something that's, that's confined to healthcare professionals. As you look through the literature from all different professions, you see some things that are very much uh, in common in terms of definition of unprofessional behavior. 
Um, some of this comes from the Joint Commission, but it, it would be things like verbal outbursts and, and or physical threats, uh, passive aggressive behaviors, much like some of the behavior that I described in one of my former colleagues, uh, refusal to answer questions or return pages, uh, and uh, using a condescending tone or condescending language when, when talking with other, people's on, other people on the healthcare team. How serious is the problem? Um, based on a study that ACPE and the American Organization of Nurse Executives uh, did in, in uh, uh, mid-2009 and, and subsequently reported in uh, the Physician Executive Journal November-December issue, um, what we found is that uh, uh, the problem continues to persist. Uh, five years earlier, we've done a similar survey, though not as long. Uh, we surveyed about uh, just over 1,700 nurses and physicians about what they see um, uh, in, in uh, their work environments. And most people saw problems on a weekly, monthly basis, sometime, uh, most often several times a year, and about 10% or so felt that it was uh, present on a daily basis. Uh, the most common problems that were reported were, uh, first and foremost, degrading comments and insults. Uh, the numbers will not add up to 100% because we had asked about what are the most frequent behaviors that you have to deal with. So about 76% of people said uh, degrading comments and insults were the most common. Another 70% said yelling, 36% cursing, and then 24% um, inappropriate joking, and 22% refusing to work together. Um, there's some other information from um, the uh, Silence Kills study uh, from uh, the American Association of Critical Care Nurses that uh, showed that three-fourths three of caregivers uh, regularly work with doctors and nurses who are condescending or rude. Um, and so uh, there's, there's many other sources that are, are uh, writing about the impact on, on patient safety. Uh, it's really workplace bullying is another way to look at this, and it's shown to have uh, um, profound impact on employees' emotional and, and physical health and productivity when this goes on. Um, in, it's interesting, in, in healthcare, about 70 to 80 percent of medical errors are felt to be due to interpersonal interaction issues or communication. Uh, what I think is fascinating about that is that it's very similar to what aviation found about three or four decades ago in uh, aviation disasters. It wasn't technology, it wasn't equipment, it was uh, human communication issues. And if in healthcare we're going to be successful by promoting better teamwork and communication, um, uh, we're going to have to recognize the fact that disruptive communication is a, a still a large problem in our industry. Thanks, uh, Dr. Barry Sobow. Um, and I want to just uh, very referenced a, a bunch of some studies. We showed a few slides here, and a reminder that you can download everything that we're sharing on today's program uh, when you log off the show. But also, we prepare a really nice resource document that goes along with every WIHI, and this one will include tremendous number of resources, including many of the articles and studies that are referenced. So, uh, hope uh, you'll uh, take advantage of those.
Um, I think I want to now turn to uh, Jerry Healy, if there's anything you want to kind of add to Barry's comments. And um, Jerry and I had talked ahead of time a bit about um, why there may be some problem in framing if, if we just reduce this to a problem with physician behavior. Um, although I think we've, you know, got some, some things to think about there when I think the numbers sometimes uh, sort of dominate in that way. So let me, let me turn it over to Jerry now. Well, um, Barry did allude to the fact that <clears throat> we're not unique in our profession having this problem. And you begin to wonder, is this impacted somewhat by societal issues? Uh, he mentioned bullying. We know that there are immense problems in uh, lower school systems, in grammar schools, in high schools with bullying. This has become subject of national uh, conversations around what's going on with our young people in the school levels. We live in a time when uh, society is under immense stress, economy, unemployment. Uh, and so all of our professions are not immune just because they happen to be doctors or nurses. I suspect talking to my legal colleagues that the legal profession has similar problems, accounting, etc. So we have to in include societal issues and the stresses that people have to face today. The problem is bringing those stresses to the workplace in, in a profession, physicians, nursing, etc., where people's lives are at stake if uh, aberrations or if violations of behavior are allowed to continue. Um, and so the reality here is that we as professionals, especially as leaders in professions, must attack this problem head on, acknowledge that it exists, acknowledge that the facts uh, uh, and statistics as outlined by Barry in his, uh, his commentary are real. So the question is, how are we going to deal with this? And I think, it, at least for us in the professions, it starts with professional schools. Uh, people don't become disruptive doctors at age 55 working in a large general hospital. These people were probably having issues with anger management, maybe substance abuse, maybe other issues, perhaps when they entered medical school. Are we doing a good enough job in screening people for nursing school, for medical school, etc., around behavioral issues, around substance abuse problems, etc., etc.? I think everybody needs to invest from, from the early days of education right on through practice performance measurements that we have in all professions, uh, at least in the healthcare world, to watch and, and monitor people's activities. And so we really need to be attentive to this on a broad spectrum, uh, begin to think about codes of conduct in the places we work, what's tolerated, what isn't, helping people with these issues, getting them uh, um, a professional help if they have difficulties with anger management or other issues. So I think it's broader than just our healthcare professions. It's a societal issue, uh, and we need to look at it in that light, but that doesn't condone it. Um, and we need to offer help and assistance to people who have these difficulties. Thank you. That's Jerry Healy. I'm Madge Kaplan. This is WIHI, and we're talking about unprofessional behavior. Um, I want to turn now to Charlotte uh, Guglielmi and uh, talk a little bit about what's going on with nurses. Um, one of the dangers, I think, of this issue is both trying to understand it and also not, you know, getting down to stereotypes. And the phrase, nurses eat their young, of course, is one that sort of floats around. Uh, with this issue, but I, I'd love for you to sort of talk about what sometimes people call about lateral. I guess there's a concept of sort of lateral uh, misbehavior or unprofessional behavior. 
glad you match. Nurses, um, we know, can be unkind to other nurses. Um, they can, um, we all can tell stories about times when perhaps when somebody was being oriented, they held back information, or um, when they've sat in the lounge and been critical of other nurses. Um, and we really can't deny that this um, exists. And it's particularly a problem right now because of the generational differences of our workforces. We have four generations actively practicing nursing today, and we need to understand the clash points between those generations and how those generations can work better. Um, Griffin out of Boston here did some um, uh, research around um, the impact of uh, lateral violence on the new generation of nurses. A study she did in 2004 reported 25 out of 26 newly hired nurses in a Boston hospital experienced lateral violence during their orientation. And 60% of the nurses studied in the same um, study left the professional position within six months due to some form of violence. 20% of those left our profession forever. Um, we, can we afford these kinds of attrition rates with the impending shortage of our workforce that's predicted over the next decade? I would say we can't. Uh, a study from the Center of Nursing in 2007 reported one out of every six nurses experienced lateral violence in, the, in their career, but only 6% report it. The same study said this is most stressful when it comes from their co-workers, even though when it comes from physicians, um, that's a problem. In cities like Boston, for example, New York, other major metropolitan areas, our hospitals are often located very close to each other. And a nurse or a surgical technologist could move from one hospital to another without changing their lifestyle at all. So we need to address these issues. If you don't have to change where you park, if your commute doesn't change, and you can get the hours you want, why would you stay somewhere that you're not being treated appropriately? Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you, uh, Charlotte Guillaume. All right. Well, Kevin, um, I, the way I was I'm trying to structure this is sort of get an, a sense of uh, the, the problems uh, and then begin to get a sense of solutions. We, we swore we would begin to, uh, you know, uh, try and sort of point people towards where we're beginning to see uh, change or evidence of what works. So, Kevin, I'd like to, Dr. Kevin Stewart, sort of have you feel free to respond to anything you've heard thus far. Um, I think I'm really struck by the numbers of people. We're now over 1,600 of you on with us today, uh, an issue that clearly is affecting many, many people. We do have some joint commission uh, standards on this, and yet I'm, I'm going to be really curious to see uh, what's on people's minds around this, because this seems like the biggest elephant in the room uh, that, that we've had on WIHI thus far. Um, so let me just throw that out to you and sort of how you how you see it, and then what are we beginning to understand about solutions? Sure. Thanks, Madge. So the, the, the good news on, on this subject, which is a difficult subject, is that something can be done and progress can be made and behaviours can be changed in many people. They can't be changed in all people. And the great news for the folks participating on the line is that it doesn't have to be leaders alone who take action. Individuals can take action as well. So there are things from right now today that individuals can do, and there are things that right now today that leaders can do. So when I say individuals can do things, um, the first thing that, that, that any, anybody can do, medical student, senior leader in an organisation, doctor, nurse, is model the behaviours that we expect. So if so, so display the behaviour yourself that is most professional and that you expect, and you can do that 
right away today. Of course, we all have lapses. We all have bad days. We all have days when we've been up all night with the kids. But model the behaviours we expect. The second thing that individuals can do is challenge their peers and colleagues and, and subordinates, folks who report to them, when they see behaviours that are, that, are, that are unacceptable. And that's not challenging. Th- this is about challenging behaviour, not challenging the individual. So, so it's, it's the behaviour that is unacceptable. Challenge that when you see it. And the third thing, and we've touched on this already, Barry mentioned this, the third thing is when you see behaviour from somebody in a more senior position, don't be silent reported and and, and, the, and this is real difficult of course but reported through whatever channels exist to report it don't be don't, don't be silent so those so, so those are the things individuals can do and then things that people like us sitting around the table leaders in healthcare organizations um, we, we we need to take this right to the top of organizations into boards as, as, as Jerry said um, we need to make sure we establish um, codes of conduct for professionals we need to make sure that we we enforce those codes of conduct and we challenge the behavior as it comes up right across the spectrum and there are some there are some great organizations that have done this very well um, Jerry Hickson who, who works in Vanderbilt and I think we've we've, we've got his slide um, on the on the screen, this is just one model, but all the models are very similar, and they're about reacting to um, what you might call lower level behaviours or passive behaviours um, or infrequent behaviours at an appropriate level. So the more serious the behaviour, the more serious the response. And if the behaviour is repeated, then folks move up to the top of the, of the triangle. At the very top, if the behaviour warrants a disciplinary intervention or a dismissal or a regulatory intervention, then we have to take that step as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Madge, we know from the from the surveys that have been done in relation to, in relation to physicians that there is a perception out there that physicians are treated much much more leniently than other staff and that intervention with physicians happens later than it does with other staff and I'm pretty sure that's true and I'm pretty sure that'll be the listener's experience so that's it, that's, it, that's just an example there are we've put other resources on the website and um, the, the the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario have got have got very good online resources um, that that have a very similar approach um, so the, so those materials are there um, I'm going to just stick with you one more second Kevin and ask you with a lot of the online materials Materials, including some of the things we'll be referencing. Is this the sort of thing that people can kind of uh, start using right off the shelf? Is it is a certain kind of training? Do organizations sure. begin to, they need to kind of create some spaces for awareness building as well as uh, helping people really start to feel more empowered? Sure. I, I, obviously for some of the interventions, particularly with the more difficult behaviors, then then specific training is necessary. We haven't all been trained to, to, to deal with difficult behavior and that might be part of the problem. But for some of the for some of the lower level behaviours, where we're asking folks just 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 to, to mention to colleagues that they've noticed that their behaviour is 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 difficult and unacceptable, and did they know that this was likely to be a patient safety risk? Then 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 it, that doesn't really require any specific training. But sure, there are training packages, and again, a, a lot of the materials will reference those. And I know that um, Barry has done a very good job at the, at the uh, American College of Physician Executives in in making awareness of the training package 
available to, to their members. Okay, thank you, uh, Kevin Stewart. All right, I'm just going to get uh, Ron in here, and then I think we're going to start opening things up and uh, see what's on your mind. We already have a couple questions coming in. Somebody's asking about Charlotte Guillaume's, uh statistics. I think what we'll do is we'll work with Charlotte. We'll uh, uh, get those to you. Um, I'm afraid we don't have the high technology right now to draw a slide and uh, shoot it right in there, but we will get those statistics to you. And uh, I am... Um, Okay, she's giving me, all right, so we'll, uh, Jesse will maybe fly that up into uh, our, our chat, uh, and a website actually that has uh, some of those uh, stats. All right, Ron Wyatt, uh, bring you back, uh, and maybe also uh, Barry very, very quickly. Um, Ron, I was going to sort of ch- turn to you a little bit about sort of, you know, what can one individual do? And um, I guess maybe thinking about a, sort of a turning point for you, and, and w- maybe what role do you think you can you play now? I mean, you're somebody who's aware. You're a physician in a hospital. Uh, do you? Does Kevin's comment, in some sense, about sort of modeling the behavior that you expect others uh, uh, to, to follow, does that make sense to you? Yeah, it, it makes sense. Uh, Madden, I'll make a, a couple of comments and ask the group a couple of questions, um, and maybe start with the questions. That, you know, I think as we looked at the data and. Uh, discuss this among ourselves, and uh, we had evolution leap over to IHI to talk about this some. Uh, it, it appears when you look at the data that most often the worst offenders are surgeons or physicians who are proceduralists, cardiologists, gastroenterologists. So, just as a question, you know, sometimes I wonder why is it that those specialties tend to pop up as the ones that we most often have to deal with. And I say that because as chief of medicine at a hospital. Um, I had to deal with this issue, and most often it was surgeons or gastroenterologists or cardiologists. And um, my frustration um, and what drove me to start talking to Kevin and Barry about this when I was there in Boston was how the organization and how organizational leadership uh, deals with this uh, and why um, we almost wait until there is a challenger-type crash before we decide that something ought to be done. Uh, So I think that on the purely theoretical, hypothetical side of things, uh, we can have uh, the best policies in place. Uh, We can have the best protocols in place. Uh, But if we don't act on those, then really we've not accomplished much. Uh, We continue to do damage to teams, uh, again, including uh, the patients that we we care for. So my frustration as a leader more than once was when we started to go through the process uh, and I would become frustrated with why are we going through this long, drawn-out process when we actually know at some point what we're actually dealing with. Uh, and I think, Jerry, that's something we've talked about before. Uh, and to me, that takes leadership courage to say, you know, we've, we've dealt with this, we know what we're dealing with, we have to act. We have done an assessment. We've done evaluation. Uh, we have a person or persons who has caused any number of issues that we've all talked about today. So, so for me, it's kind of making it, taking it from the hypothetical, theoretical, um, quality assurance world of joint commission to down to the bedside, down to the unit, and say, you know, we can no longer tolerate this behavior, no matter who it is, no matter how much revenue they bring in for the hospital. You know, if you, if you put it in a, in a broader picture of you know, we're moving to 
where we should have been, I think, in healthcare for years, a, a value-driven system, not a volume-driven system, not a churn-and-burn system, not who is the biggest moneymaker, uh, but are we providing higher levels of quality and patient safety, employee safety? And if we're not, if there are individuals who continue to show us that they will contribute to the dysfunction of our teams, then um, I don't think we can wait until we have that disaster to say, you know, this person, you can use the term managed out, but at some point as leaders, uh, all the way to the board, and as a medical leader, I think it will be part of my responsibility to say to the board, we need to make a change, um, and the board of directors needs to have my back when I say that. Uh, and that takes, you know, what I would call courage with the big C, you know, to say we have to have the courage to say no matter who this person is, uh, they can no longer be a part of our culture because we have a culture of safety. Right. Well, that's sort of culture of fear. Yeah. Uh, and in too many places, there's a culture of fear. Patients are even terrified to speak up. Patient families who are terrified to, to offer uh, information that may help their loved one in the hospital for fear of a physician saying, you know, essentially, how dare you give me information? I'm the doctor. I know what I'm doing. Right. Uh, we have to move beyond that. We have to have the courage to move beyond that. Thanks, uh, Ron. Yeah, I, I think in some ways, as I'm listening to you, it sort of makes me think of Charlotte's comments about never events and um, zero tolerance. And um, and I guess, you know, you raise a pretty fundamental question, which is codes of conduct and even uh, the Jerry Hickson work at Vanderbilt and sort of processes. And I can sense, even from the chat here and a little bit in Ron's comments, there's a certain impatience on people's part, which is that things can happen very quickly quickly. Uh, and, uh, you know, do, do we have all the time in the world to sort of try and manage this? Uh, Kevin, I see you nodding. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I would relate to Ron's comments, Madge, because um, there's certainly evidence that the higher profile physicians who have the most influence for the organization are likely to be dealt with more leniently and and, and I guess in US systems that would be that would be the high earners um, that would be people who who would be close to the board uh, and so on but this it happens it happens in international systems as well and that of course would tend to be surgeons or gastroenterologists there is I would be wary of, of, of making this a specialty specific thing because it's not a doctor specific thing and it's yeah. not a specialty specific thing. It is we all have a responsibility across the piece, all healthcare professionals. I see somebody on the chat has mentioned um, healthcare managers or administrators, um, and and in the United Kingdom where I, where I work, there's certainly been an issue with that in a big um, uh, patient safety scandal recently, and um, there was an issue about managerial staff. Both Bullying uh-huh. other staff as right. well, so it's 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 across the piece. I would be wary about singling out specific specialties. Okay, all right. I think there are all these layers, and and they all kind of have pieces of truths, and then we have to qualify. I think uh, the chat sort of um, people are seeping right into the chat right now. I think I see Charlotte wants to make a comment. Jesse, why don't you remind people? It seems some people already know what they're doing uh, with, with the chat, but let's make sure people know now. They should just go ahead and and uh, ask questions, make comments. Absolutely, Madge. So I'm going to open up the chat room for everyone. Uh, In the drop-down menu where you select where you're going to send it to, as you can see on the screen there, please select 
all participants and send your message to all participants. A few of you have snuck message into the panel and to the host. Uh, and there's an interesting question from Susan Eisner, if I can get it in before uh, okay, the comment here. In the actual moment that a person is being disrupted, how should the quote-unquote victim handle it at that moment? Is there any you know strategies that you guys can recommend? All right. Yeah. Kevin raised his hand. The usual recommendation um, yeah. from all the groups who do the work on this is to, is to step away from it. Um, going into conflict mode at that moment is is neither is, is good for none of the parties involved and is certainly not good for the patient. So step away from it and deal deal with it later. Um, and that that will be when when folks go on go on training courses and access training courses that will be what the teaching is. Jerry was. Uh, well, I'm smiling because uh, <laughs> I recall how my administrative assistant dealt with this one day when I was actually having a bad day, as we all do. As uh, Kevin pointed out, there are days for all of us that we wish we had acted differently, and I was having a particularly uh, stressful day and. One uh, afternoon, my assistant said to me, you need to take a time out and go out to the restroom and look in the mirror. You won't like what you see. Mm. And to me, that was a wake-up call. Yeah. But it was also uh, encouraging to me that she felt the culture of our organization was was such that she could actually say that to the the so-called boss and not feel intimidated or whatever. And so that made me feel a a little good about it. But the reality is um, the organizational structure that tolerates this has a problem with leadership. And if, if it's all about money and big earners at any cost, then the organization has really got a problem. And so it starts with boards. What is the culture the board sets? What is tolerated? What's the code of behavior of this institution? What does the CEO of the hospital tolerate? Are they always afraid of being sued by people if they take disciplinary action, et cetera, et cetera? Um, and so I think it requires leadership, and it requires the Shalakul Yelmis of the world, or, you know, when I was president of the American College of Surgeons, I gave my presidential address on this subject to raise awareness of our organization. This was a problem. The incoming president, this coming October has vowed to us that he's going to raise the awareness of this again. And so it takes leadership. It requires us to continue this this dialogue that we're having and this discussion that we're having today to make people aware. It, it requires the Barry Silvers of the world to keep up making us cognizant of these statistics, making leaders in healthcare aware that there is a problem in their organizations, and what are they going to do about it? And I think that's, as best I can tell, what what we have to do. We have to start somewhere, and we have to change our culture. This is a cultural change that has to be addressed. Thank you very much. Jerry Healy, um, I'm, I'm going to get everybody in here. We love all the questions that are coming uh, fast and furious. I'm going to try and sort through them all. Just a reminder, it's 10 minutes before the top of the hour, and we did decide that we are, or just about 10 minutes, we're going to extend this program until 3.30 Eastern time today. We hope uh, some of you at least can stick around as our panelists uh, are, are absolutely willing to do so and happy to do so. Um, Jerry's comment is an interesting one because I see a lot of comments coming here from people who at some level may have at different times felt actually powerless, they were retaliated against, or felt that the only really recourse was to walk off the job, as Charlotte was kind of referring to earlier. And some are asking about what's what's the legal world uh, out there. You're, you're making a big point about culture and leadership, and I guess I'm going to turn to Barry Silva and I'm going to say, well, 
Well, it seems to me the American College of Physician Executives is just that sort of an organization with influence. Some people here are wondering, you know, is there a law to protect them, uh, never mind the Joint Commission Conduct Standard. Uh, Barry, what, what kinds of uh, thinking would, would you offer here? Uh, are leaders taking this seriously enough? Well, first of all, uh, my usual disclaimer, I am not an attorney, nor do I aspire to be one. <laughs> but um, but uh, I want to go back to, uh, I want to use uh, the opportunity to answer your question, Madge, by, by just affirming what Ron, Kevin, and, and Jerry said. Um, and Jerry, uh, when I was in Boston a couple of weeks ago, uh, I, I quoted uh, you, actually, a comment that you made that I thought was really important for anyone working in healthcare. And what you had said was that whenever humans gather in a hierarchical system, there will be conflict uh, and communication issues. So I think the first thing is to recognize that that is the environment we have in healthcare, just like the environment in, in many other industries. Um, when you're in the midst of, of a situation like that, uh, what I would call a hot conflict, I'll tell you what, what I do. Uh, I immediately realize that it takes two hands to clap. And if I feel like you know one hand is coming at me and, and that hand wants another one to make a lot of noise and, and destruction, I just consciously uh, slip out of the, the conflict mode and, and try to de-escalate it. I, I like to use the analogy of a of a hurricane. It's an incredibly destructive force on the periphery, but at the center there's a, a, a place of relative calm. And I think when you're when you're the recipient of disruptive communication, intimidation, etc., you have to put yourself in that place emotionally. Um, there are some ways to structure communication um, uh, to to improve that. Uh, there are some systems that have called what they call a code white. That anyone that's that the that's the recipient of a um, of a situation like that has the authority to, to get other people to come and just stand and watch what's going on because as, as each of the speakers has illustrated unless you put a spotlight on this issue it will not get better uh, in fact it gets worse if it's if it's in secret uh, the role of senior leaders absolutely everyone needs to know that senior leaders have their back it has to be discussed at the board level it has to be supported by the senior leadership team and, and one of the things that senior leaders can do is um, uh, help uh, the staff develop uh, structured communication that's, that's common in other industries like nuclear safety, aviation, et cetera. I'm always amazed when I talk to my oldest son, who's a commercial pilot, when he uh, talks about his colleagues. It's very respectful, and they have done this in aviation uh, and have pretty much eliminated disruptive behavior and communication in their industry compared to what, where we're at in healthcare, and I think we have a lot we can learn from them. Yep. Um, finally, I don't know if yep. there are protections for, yep. uh, for people or not, Madge, yep. uh, but, but what I know is that when you're in leadership positions like this and you have to deal with, this, with these issues, there are many uh, peripheral issues that come about. Uh, people will say, who are you to question me? I'm the doctor. I admit lots of patients to this hospital, bring in lots of money, etc. cetera. Uh, or the media will get a hold of this, or someone might sue us. Um, what I try to do is focus just on the issue of patient safety, because fundamentally that's what, what uh, communication is all about. And, and the other things will take care of themselves. 
Okay, thank you, uh, Barry Silbal. Again, this is WIHI. I'm Madge Kaplan, and we're having a very interesting and important discussion about unprofessional behavior. Um, a question for Charlotte and maybe anyone else who wants to jump in. It sounds like some people are looking for how do you get a, almost like a baseline of what's going on in your organization, some of the data. It seems to me if we're thinking about this from a systems point of view, we need to know what the reality is and, and kind of what the um, culture may be in your own organization. I, I'm curious. Charlotte, if, if that's gone on at Beth Israel or if you're aware of that? Uh. Well, I, think, I think a lot of places are actually trying to get a baseline. They're asking in their patient safety surveys questions around the, the climate, whether what what's the uh, uh, work Flow. We work very closely in my facility with our um, uh, human resources department and with our, our physician colleagues to identify situations where um, behavior has been issues. I also look to it when I'm sorting out through um, uh, incident reports or patient safety reports. We have a system where any member of our team can call out in real time the need for an immediate post-case debriefing. And we try to bring the team together as, as quickly as we can um, after the fact to be able to sit down face-to-face -face and talk about what inappropriate behavior might have happened in the rooms. It helps us deal with the issues amongst our providers, and it helps us also to address the learning needs of our physicians, our nurses, our surgical technologists, and our CPD techs to be able to help them to really move forward. I also noticed somebody was asking about travelers and if mm -hmm. travelers are powerless in the whole system. Traveler nurses. Traveling nurses and right. surgical technologists, they're not because they're contracted to facilities. Traveling companies have a responsibility to find out from facilities what's in place to protect their employees when conflicts are uh, raised. And on the other hand, the employees, the hospitals, have a responsibility to work with their traveling partners to say, how do you screen nurses for these issues? How do you prepare them? What kind of education do you do? And together, in your contractual work, before you ever get a nurse in your door, you need to figure out how you're going to manage these things if they occur with people that are your employees. Okay, Charlie. Kevin? Yeah, in answer much to the question, how how do we get a gauge for what's happening in right. this organization? One of the things that Jerry Hickson has done in Vanderbilt is monitor complaints against physicians and monitor litigation involving physicians. And um, now I know... Monitoring it within that organization? Monitoring within his physician yes. group. Mm -hmm. And he's published his work on this, so it'll be accessible through his website. And, of course, what he's found is that a relatively small number of physicians are responsible for a disproportionate share of the complaints which involve patient behaviour and those folks are also more at risk for, for, for litigation in the future. But, but by having a proactive system where, where if folks are mentioned in complaints with having had behavioural issues, then there is intervention with those individuals before there are reports of lots of incidents. So, that's, so that's, that seems to be a good way to um, flag up the issues in individual organizations. Jerry, were you? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I think it's important to point out that 95% of the men and women in, in this country and around the world who get up every day and try to take care of patients in whatever element of health care they're involved are good people who don't engage in this behavior. But unfortunately, it's the small fraction that can infect an organism, and I, I, and I call them cancers because they metastasize, they infect the organism, as I said about infection, uh, and they're a problem. Now, there is data from medical malpractice claims across this country, uh, so beyond Dr. Hickson's data, the med mal claims say that 
uh, unprofessional conduct is a very large piece of what stimulates patients to sue doctors. You know, if you have a caring, thoughtful relationship with your patient and with your staff, uh, society will cut you a little slack, if you will, if there are mistakes made and things don't go according to plan. But if you have a personality issue and uh, you sow the seeds, you will be sued. And so it may well be that assistance in dealing with this problem has to be made by the med mal carriers and the nursing uh, professional liability carriers that say if we have complaints along these lines or if, you, if you're sued for this kind of behavior, you're going to have substantial increases in your premiums. And, you know, you begin to sort of hit people in their pocketbook. It's kind of a cruel way to do it. But society and the healthcare society, the healthcare community, needs to get a message. So we shouldn't punish the 95% of good people by raising their premiums. But the bad actors need to have disciplinary action. And perhaps it's, it's done by either restricting their privileges or hitting their pocketbook with higher liability insurance premiums. Thanks, uh, Jerry Healy. You know, I, I want to thank everybody who's uh, chatting away here and also uh, taking a stab at answering some of the questions. Um, we uh, Somebody wrote in and said, my husband is a commercial pilot. They have a do not pair, as in P-A-I-R, list where pilots can ask not to fly with pilots who are too hard to get along with. Um, once a pilot gets too many of these, they get called in to talk to the chief pilot why doesn't medicine do this? I think this? that sounds like a great idea, Madge. Yeah. I would love to have a do not pair list. Right. Um, I think, I think, I think I, and, and Barry, right. Sil- right. Barry, Barry knows a lot about the airline industry, Barry Silva, and I'm sure he, w- he would agree with that. Um, I want to get back to kind of some of these system issues and sort of at the top of the program in my introductory remarks, I alluded to the fact that drawing the connections between, um, you know, patient safety issues and medical errors may be the thing that, you know, starts to give this kind of more um, momentum uh, as opposed to maybe some other ways that people have tried to frame that or one might hope that would be. So from a systems point of view then, uh, how do you embed this in a way that nobody can avoid this. Charlotte referred to the fact of going over incident reports and sort of noting, and I'm wondering though, is that a little bit like trying to detect or maybe there was a communication issue, or does that get spoken of? In a, you know, Do people have a box they can check off that says there was an issue here, or one of the factors that might have contributed? So I'm trying to figure out what starts to bring this more to the fore. I think, I think those issues are often there, Madge, yeah. and yet... They are rarely hi- they are rarely highlighted right. in the systems we have at the moment. So the systems are there, which would bring them up. But you know, because this is an unspoken issue, right. it is it, it is rarely highlighted, and that's because you can see what people are chatting in. Um, they bring issues up, and they're not supported by senior leadership, and they're not supported by the board. For me, taking this to the board as a patient safety issue and saying this organization has got a patient safety risk if it tolerates this behavior is the best way to, getting it come to, to get it come down and deal with it as a patient safety issue. Mm-hmm. There, are, there, are, there are all those other good reasons, Charlotte, aren't there, for dealing with this about retention and about morale and about people being, being, being happy in their work, which is, which is pretty important. But highlighting it as a patient safety issue means that the board can't ignore it and senior leadership can't ignore it. Right, exactly. Jerry? Well, I'd like to ask uh, Kevin a question, if I could, because <laughs> it, uh, one of our uh, chat people asked uh, or mentions that yeah. it's big uh, earners who get uh, sort of swept under the rug. 
But in another system where we don't have fee-for-service, the system you're uh, used to working in, Kevin, um, is there a relevant issue here? Is it uh, big producers? Uh, who are the offenders in the United Kingdom? Because it's easy to say, oh, it's the guys or gals that bring in a lot of money to the hospital, and they're the people. If they're bad actors, the hospital won't deal with them. But hey, how, uh, Kevin, how does... This is Ron. Kevin, Hi, Ron. Before you answer that, let me, let me <laughs> chime in just a bit on that. Uh, I think I know what Kevin's going to say. But, you know, over the year, I visited several big systems uh, looking specifically at this issue. And, and one thing, Jerry, did stand out. Uh, the places where there are staff models, where there's a high percentage of employed physicians, it appeared to be less of an issue. Uh, this is actually including the, the Department of Defense. So, you know, I wonder military, VA employed physicians, big systems where most of this, like a Geisinger or uh, specifically I visit Henry Ford, it seemed to be less of an issue, but at the same time, there seemed to be less of a tolerance for it because these organizations had worked for years to establish a certain kind of culture, uh, and you had to uh, comply with that culture. In another organization, it's part of credentialing and mm -hmm. recredentialing right. that there is, yeah. for lack of a better term, a fit for the culture of the organization, and they would decide at a point that if this person didn't fit that culture, then they could no longer be in that organization. So you know, I just wonder, and I don't know if there's any studies out there, but organizations where there are more employee physician models, military or VA even, I wonder if there's maybe less um, of this behavior than in hospitals where there's a mostly volunteer staff. Thanks, Ron. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Ron. Um, the, the straight answer to the question, is this still a big problem in systems that we have completely different payment systems and all employed staff? Yes, it is. We've, and we've just done a survey, which Ron knows about, of clinical leaders in the UK, and it's remarkably similar. The, the results are remarkably similar to what's coming out from the American College of Physician Executives. I think where we are in a stronger position, and, and, and some, of those system, some of those US systems that you've mentioned, Ron, will, will have the same strength, is that when we have employed physicians and when we don't have the fee-for-service system, we, we, have, we are in a better position to deal with it. Now, somebody on the chat said, is this more of a problem, less of a problem in the UK. It's pretty much about the same size of problem. As far as I'm aware, the same problems exist in Canada, the same problems exist in, in Australia and New Zealand where some work has been done. So I, so I think the problems are universal. Our ability to deal with them because of our regulatory system and our payment system, I think we're slightly better off. To an extent, that's an indictment of us, Ron, for not having got on and dealt with them sooner um, right. so, 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 so it's universal but the, but the systems that, that you've mentioned Geisinger in particular I think have done good work on this okay. right. and one of the big Midwest systems um, you know, I talked to their uh, senior uh, attorney and she basically said we have a zero tolerance uh, policy that once this type of behavior reached her office then they were willing to go to the wall on it uh, there was no timidity about saying to the person involved that you're no longer a part of this organization, period. And then she said, at that point, we're prepared to fight to defend the culture of the organization. And I think that's the kind of courage uh, a lot of organizations need. Okay. Yeah, and I, I had this conversation, Ron, with a group of uh, folks from the U.K. earlier in the week. 
and their perception was it's easier to get rid of a doctor in the US than it is in the UK. And I said, people in the US tell me it's easier to get rid of a doctor in the UK than it is in the US. It's it's pretty difficult, and it depends on it has to come from the top of the organisation, as we've said. Okay. Some people are. Thank you very much again, WIHI. We're kind of going over uh, our our 3 p.m. time, and we'll sort of stick around with uh, everyone uh, until uh, 3:30 Eastern time for as long as uh, people have questions. Um, I I notice again, um, you know, at a certain point, I can tell people must reach a threshold where they're saying, uh, again, what are solutions? Um, I'm wondering, Charlotte, not to put you on the spot, but do you have? um, I know there's been a lot of references to resources and toolkits and things, and I I want to say that WIHI is not as well set up to sort of do a whole kind of teaching training thing. But I'm wondering if Charlotte, uh, have you been part of anything where you kind of went through some steps of kind of uh, solutions or uh, kind of even a bad a problem situation in your organization that you might be able to sort of lay out for us? I can uh, call attention to the work of the CSPS, the Council on Surgical and um, Perioperative Safety. They've done a lot of, the group is uh, made up of the seven societies, seven major societies in the operating room, Um, the surgeons, anesthesia, uh, OR nurses, PACU nurses, surgical technologists, surgical PAs. And they have have landed on um, violence in the workplace as one of their safer surgery principles. That was the website we shared. Um, In that, we take the collective presence of all of the societies and have put together some tools and resources around um, managing um, violence um, in the workplace. I'm going to highlight just very quickly a couple of those tools. One is some fabulous work that's been done by Dr. Mark Lima up at um, Roswell Park Cancer Institute in Buffalo. They've done a wonderful job creating a communication plan, a code of conduct, and that particularly has uh, retaliation policies that are particularly great in it. And um, there's information about those policies in that um, uh, that downloadable um, presentation that um, I suggested um, earlier in in the, the talk. Another is the work of Sharon McNamara when she was a perioperative director at Wake Medical in North Carolina, and she did work with her staff. They created their lounge as being a neutral zone. It's a place where they don't tolerate gossip, negative column, any bad behaviors. And they've developed a very clear pathway that was with the staff and the physicians to escalate that and to deal with it with management. Um, They've taken it yet a step further, and in their operating room, they've created something they call code purple. And purple means please use respectful language every time. Any member can call a code purple, and when they witness that behavior, it triggers a response. Fabulous work, and Sharon can be connected, contacted through um, the CSPS website. Um, at BI, we've been working at this for a very long time. Um, we started out by laying the groundwork, fabulous work by Elena Kinnikari and Dr. Don Mormon, by beginning to work to create a, a, a climate of civility in our workplace um, with the goal of zero tolerance. We took that the next step because we felt as though staff could not move forward in a positive direction without some tools to be able to do this. And we did some form of team training um, for over a 1,000 um, uh, staff over a four-year period. Um, we saw our nurse uh, retention rate, um, vacancy rate decreasing from 25% in 2003 to less than 1% in 2006. It stays that way. Um, and um, we now take this a step further with some work in our clinical simulation 
lab as well as using real-time debriefing, pulling a team together as soon as we possibly can after an event or when somebody perceives there to be an event to talk through this and to work with staff through the divisions. Those are just three examples, and I'm sure my colleagues have more. Okay. Thank you, Charlotte Kuyelmi. A reminder, because somebody just asked in the chat, yes, if you're online today, uh, you can you have an option when you get off. It asks if you want to download all um, the slides and the chat as well. And so definitely click that. If you're only on by phone today, you can email uh, info at w, excuse me info at ihi.org and you can ask us uh, to uh, make sure to send you the chat. We'll be happy to do so. Um, I want to there there are a number of people who are also sort of adding links of their own, which is good, and we'll try and capture some of that. Um, Barry, I'm going to just bring you back in here. Um, are you you know listening to sort of Charlotte's uh, ideas here? Uh, did are you hearing about sort of some very, very effective strategies as well from your perch? Yes. Um, some of the strategies are coming uh, from outside of healthcare. When I mentioned, mentioned structured communication, uh, what I mean is you train everyone in the hospital, from the dietary department, the janitorial staff, all the way to the medical staff, in uh, what good communication is and what bad communication is. Uh, and you you talk about how to how to challenge uphill authority is the way I like to phrase it. Mm-hmm. So that if someone has a serious safety issue, they know how to do this. I've tried it when I do part-time rounds as a hospitalist, and and with even with individuals who have had no background or training, some of these are very very simple. What happens at the sharp end? One of the best known is the uh, the so-called arc technique. First, you ask a question, always using the lightest touch possible. Uh, if you have a question about an order, like Dr. Silva, um, did I hear you say PO or sub Q? Uh, then you escalate by um, uh, making a request. Dr. Silva, would you change uh, the PO order to sub Q? And then you keep escalating by voicing a concern. The first C and the last C would be use chain of command. If everyone understands how that works, then when you get in a situation, both people in the communication understand what's happening. Uh, one of the best comments I had heard from uh, a nurse in uh, Medford, Oregon, um, said, and all the other nurses agreed with her and all the, all the physicians did as well. She said, uh, I have a technique that always works. She said, I always put a smile on my face and I ask the physician uh, with a puzzled look on my face, could you help me understand why? And it might be a communication issue, it might be um, uh, an, an order issue, technical issue, but, but that, that always seems to work. And if, if you get that dialogue going with the caregiver team, uh, it's amazing where it can lead. One of the things that, that we're recommending and starting to work on is uh, coming up with a much deeper root cause analysis that would include not only the human factors and the human errors involved in, in a catastrophe, but also the organizational factors that contribute to that, the most prominent of which is the culture of the organization. And it allows you to ask questions such as, why didn't somebody speak up? And it, it would get to, I think, a lot of the questions that are coming in on the chat room about um, that, that where senior leadership has not uh, had the courage, as Ron talked about earlier, to deal with these issues. I can tell you in, in my career at one point I saw a hospital uh, executive, the leader of the hospital, um, kick a, the highest income earner off his staff because of inappropriate behaviors. 
And um, I never saw for years after that anything negative that, that resulted from that decision. Other physicians looked at this hospital and medical staff and they said, I want to work there too. Uh, once people know what, what lines they cannot cross and they know what the, what the consequences will be, uh, their behavior tends to get in line. I want to uh, tell people we're going to keep going here for just another uh, we've until uh, 3.30. I also want to just remind people, July seems like a great time to tell everyone that IHI's National Forum is coming up in December, brr, uh, 5th through 8th in Orlando, Florida. Oh, it's warmer there. Um, this is going to be our 22nd year, and we expect over 5,000 of you, we hope. Kevin Stewart and Ron Wyatt, who are with us today, are in fact going to be leading a session on this issue of unprofessional conduct and behavior. Uh, and uh, just you can get in early and uh, register now. Uh, there's information on our website, and we certainly hope to see you in Orlando. Thank you very much. Can I say that session will be worth every penny? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of details, and and I think we're, we're I I want to applaud everyone for trying to wrap our arms around a complicated subject um, on this program. That's kind of the beauty of WIHI. We are trying to seed a lot of things. We can't solve everything in any of our programs. Do download the chat, folks, though, because you are all dialoguing in a really fascinating way with one another with resources and uh, details. Looks like Jerry wants to say something, and then I want to sort of go back to this issue of the four generations of nurses that are working in hospitals today and talk a little bit more about uh, medical students. There's sort of a double-edged thing, I think, going on uh, with students, but Jerry, you had a a comment? Um, Our discussion in terms of solutions has centered around the workplace, but the reality in my opinion is that it has to start a lot sooner than that. Um, We we have to hold medical schools, nursing schools, uh, hospital administration schools, etc. accountable for this issue as well. Uh, We need to screen people better who are coming into these professions for aberrant personalities, as I said earlier, et cetera. We need to get doctors, nurses, and other health care providers speaking and communicating with each other much earlier in their training and in their careers than 3 o'clock in the morning on a floor in a busy hospital with a very sick patient. Uh, so we need to hold the educators accountable to be part of the solution, as well as those of us who inherit these people once they graduate from the professional schools, and now we are faced with an issue that perhaps could have been addressed a lot earlier. So the reality here is it's a multifaceted solution, not just in the workplace, not just a, a, uh, setting up a code of conduct, but we need to get medical school deans, nursing school deans, and other professional schools engaged in helping us solve this issue much earlier than we are at the moment. Uh, Jerry and I had uh, talked, thanks Jerry, we had talked about the fact that earlier this year the Lucian Leap Institute issued a very important report on uh, changes and reform and recommendations for medical education in particular, and this issue was addressed in the report, and I know Lucian Leap himself uh, was trying to draw attention to it, and there was some discussion about the Association of American Medical Colleges and others that may start to pick up the baton. That's maybe another thing that I can get all of you thinking about is that I see a lot of people are going to be thinking about what to do about this in their own organizations, but uh, maybe some places that people might start to 
turn we've uh, around tools, but maybe as to be part of either an ongoing conversation or begin to sort of be more part of an organizational uh, effort here. Charlotte, can we come back to this issue about the generations of nurses? Um, it seems to me that that is one of the challenges. And I'm, I'm just, when you say that, are you alone in your awareness that you've got these four generations going on uh, in, in the workplace now and that that's really something that's got to be better understood? No, I think it's pretty widespread, at least um, uh, in, in, at AORN in our society. We're, we're addressing this every single day as we look at how we present education, how we present programs. We have different audiences who want to learn different ways, but we have core content we have to get out there. As an educator, it's our responsibility to deliver that content so it works. We also have to teach on how to identify the clash points. What I like is different than what my 25-year-old niece likes, who's a perioperative nurse. But we need to understand together the core issues and deliver them so that we can respect each other and we can learn to live with that. And that's also the case when there's so many nurses. The average age of an operating room nurse is 53. Mm-hmm. The average age, I would suggest, of a young resident is not 53. Mm-hmm. It's probably closer to 26 or 28. So when we look at the interdisciplinary language, too, and I think uh, Dr. Healy's points around medical education earlier interdisciplinary is going to help us with some of these problems moving forward. Okay, thank you. That's Charlotte Guglielmi. Um I also want to um, sort of speak to this issue about medical students in, in this way. Um, IHI, as many of you know, has a virtual space on our website. It's called the IHI Open School, about two years old now, the program, and going strong uh, with courses in a lot of chapters. There are some interesting videos uh, on that website uh, about this very issue. Ron Wyatt is in one of them and talks a little bit more about something he alluded to earlier uh, in terms of how, you know, the kind of headspace he got into with re, re, uh, relative to some medical students. Um, we hear, and uh, very early on, I think, with the open school medical students landing in hospitals, witnessing behavior that they're rather shocked to see and yet not feeling the slight in any sense of empowerment, not having a clue. Uh, is, is this the norm? It, can one speak up? So very, very early on, it's that early on piece, and I know Jerry was even talking about younger than that, but that very, very early on point uh, about suddenly being on the job, witnessing things, wondering, is you know, am I the only one who's noticing something that seems either how I'm being treated or how somebody else? So what's a medical student supposed to do in that instance? Jerry? Well, it's a fascinating, uh, uh, timely topic because just before I came on the air with uh, this program, I was meeting with a student who had just finished his first year of medical school, and now many medical schools are immersing students from day one in the patient setting. So he was assigned to a large general hospital uh, in the area of his medical school, and I said, uh, how would you characterize your experience? And he said, in one word, intimidating. And I said, oh, you were overwhelmed by the uh, hospital or whatever. He said, no, I was intimidated by the behavior of the physicians who were supposed to be teaching me and how they treated the residents and the nurses. He said, I found it very scary. So I looked at him and I said, well, what are you going to do about it? 
And he looked puzzled, and he said, well, what can I do? I said, you can actually do a lot, because this is your future. Is this the culture you want to persist and have persist and perpetuate it into the future? Or do you and your fellow students want to change this? Because if you want to change it, you need to get a group of your fellow students together and, and say to the dean or whoever, the dean of students at your school, we're very upset about this, and we want to know what is the school doing to change this. And I think that's where it's got to start. It's got to start at the grassroots level. We've got to get these young people energized that they can speak up, that they need to bring it to the attention of people who are charged with their education and say, we are not going to accept this. And I also asked him, I said, after your first year, can you look around your class and see bad actors that are already behaving poorly? He said, absolutely. Mm. And so maybe we're not screening people properly to get into the professional schools. We're looking too much at their grade point average and their medical college admission test scores or whatever the equivalent is in nursing school, etc. Uh, we need to take a hard look at this because we're not doing it right and we're sending the wrong message to these young people. Yeah, I think you're right, Jerry. This is Ron. Go ahead. Um, and, you know, you know, I think but um, beyond just selecting out, and I think there has to be more focus on selecting the students uh, in advance. You know, but I'll take myself again as an example. You, you know, I, I went into medical school, I think, as a nice guy. Um, went in still in medicine for the right reasons. Uh, my very first day as a junior student, my intern said there's a guy down the hall. He's in diabetic acidosis. He needs an LP. The nurse is in there. She knows how to do it. I got to go to the ER. Go do it. Don't mess it up. I'll be back later. Right. Um, and I was very intimidated to the point of being terrified by that. Uh, and that was my first day as a junior medical student. And beyond that, it was this um, attitude that if you aren't cavalier or aggressive, you were somehow not worthy, uh, and then that's perpetuated. So here I am going as a nice guy. That's what I'm exposed to. Then when I become a resident, I think, okay, this is how we build character in internal medicine. Uh, this is what being a good internist means. You got to be, you know, the cold word was you got to be strong. Yeah. And, and Ron, and Ron, you've described very well the the way we learn behaviors from our from our peers, haven't you? And we learn right. the culture. Right. And you're you're still a nice guy. You'll be pleased to hear. Um, <laughs> and, and and you were you yes. were still a nice guy even when your behavior was not nice. So it's right. about people's behavior, and it's about the the system positively feeds back. You know, we all know in medicine about feedback loops. The system positively feeds back on the behavior. And sure, there are some people who just will not change their behavior. But there's an awful lot of people who are nice guys. But the only way that they think they can get results is by behaving badly. Right. And so, and so that's that's where we need to intervene as well. We need to demonstrate to folks this is not the way to behave. This is bad for patients. Just because somebody else behaved like that doesn't mean that I'm going to behave like it. And that, Jerry, is where your group of medical students will make a difference. Right. And I like the way Ron, Ron's point when you were talking about being maybe selecting out. Also, how do we select in? I mean, there's interesting ways to sort of be thinking about this. And I think Kevin, you had also said to me uh, very strongly that it's important for people to also realize that people can change, that you yeah. can change uh, behavior, not necessarily, uh, we're not talking about changing fundamentally people's personalities, but you can change behavior. Yeah, that's an absolutely key point, Matt. Right. We're not talking, we, we, we talk about the behaviors, and this is what we learn from other industries as well, of course. We talk about the behaviors, we don't talk about the people, we challenge the behavior. So I'm not challenging you as an individual, and I'm not challenging your core values.
values because they're not the same as mine because we're all entitled to our values. What I'm challenging is your behaviour, which I know is, is, is bad for patients. So And, and, and behaviour can change and it's conditioned by the circumstances we're in. Okay, very, very good. Well, you know what? I think what I'm going to do, uh, thank you all for continuing to chat. You've been, uh, those of you, over a thousand of you have stuck around with us uh, for our extended special edition of WIHI today and that's just really fantastic. I hope you will take advantage of the chat. I think what we're going to do now, Barry, and I'll start with you, is let's kind of, uh, you know, offer some sort of wrap-up comments. I was going to throw, you know, a big issue at you, like what role is this uh, Joint Commission uh, kind of conduct requirement, you know, uh, what effect it's having, and if you want to tee off that as well, uh, you're welcome to. It certainly seems to sort of at least set the right tone. Uh, the question is, you know, it does, it does it have enough behind it? And it seems like that's a lot of what we're talking about today. But Barry, why don't, why don't you, uh, you can sort of choose what, what you'd like to say in, in some parting way, at least for today's program. Sure. Uh, thanks, Madge. I think I'd like to just talk briefly about the role of physician leaders and professional associations. I think um, uh, it, this also applies to nursing leaders, pharmacists, and health system leaders. I think we all have a duty to shine a spotlight on um, unprofessional behavior. American College of Surgeons has done this. Uh, many other organizations are realizing that uh, it takes courage, but once you put a spotlight on this um, and get a discussion going, much like we've done today, things start to happen. Um, we can no longer claim that it's a few bad apples that, that are guilty of disruptive communication. We all have that capacity in us when we have a bad day, and uh, we all need to recognize that. Um, as individual human beings and as organizations, um, we, we need to develop both the will and the skill to confront this problem. Uh, we don't think that there's uh, any reason to walk away from, from something that definitely needs to be confronted. I've never seen a problem improve that, uh, where, where the, the bad behavior hasn't been confronted. Um, and we've talked about this a lot today. We need to role model appropriate leadership for the medical staff, for senior health system leaders, uh, uh, clinical and non-clinical. We've talked about enforcing codes of conduct. They're there for a reason. Uh, they need to be uh, enforced. And then uh, finally, I think we have to understand how to create a culture of safety because fundamentally that's what this is all about. Uh, it's it's uh, patients' lives that are at stake. Um, we need to understand that lots of small interactions shape and sustain uh, an organizational culture. And as uh, Kevin pointed out and others, uh, these are behaviors we're talking about. We don't need lots of, of money from the federal government or uh, uh, private organizations to, to buy technology. We, we have to focus on bad behaviors and change those to good behaviors and then focus on how to uh, imprint those behaviors of uh, being more respectful to our colleagues. And my last quote is really is, is something that I tell physicians uh, and uh, attendees at at our sessions all the time, and it's something that Maya Angelou said that I think um, resonates for me as a physician and as a, a human being. She said, people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, uh, but they will never forget how you made them feel. So you can be the best surgi surgical technician, the best diagnostician, um, the best nurse, etc., but if people don't feel good when they work with you and they don't feel like Mm -hmm. um, they're contributing in the way that they want to contribute uh, and that you're not respecting their unique skills and um, um, talents uh, in, in health care, 
you're going to have a problem, and you're not going to leave the legacy that you want to leave. Thank you so much, Dr. Barry Silbaugh, and uh, thank you, Maya Angelou, often uh, very, yes. very, very quotable. Um, very quickly, because I, I do, uh, we do want to end on time, uh, a, a very quick comment, Ron, just a sort of a g- goodbye thought. Uh, sure. You know, I would like to, to, to leave us with um, something Jerry alluded to, that we, we have a legacy as as medical leaders and, and patient safety experts and, and healthcare thinkers. We have a legacy to build and to leave. And uh, I, that legacy has to begin with being professionals, professionalism, and protecting the safety of our patients and our staff. So, uh, for this issue, I think our legacy is to, to do what we can to make sure that this is not ignored, that it's not buried, that organizations, medical schools, uh, systems uh, become committed uh, to doing something about addressing disruptive behavior uh, and being committed to it as an issue of health and well-being, not just for patients, but for the entire staff that we work with, deal with, and live with. Thank you so much, uh, Ron Wyatt, joining us today from um, Alabama. Uh, Charlotte. Parting thoughts. <laughs> My parting thoughts are really, if if you're a nurse educator, teach your nurse, your young nurses about it. Teach your old nurses about it. Let's deal with this one nurse at a time, to each other, one person at a time. If you're a nursing administrator, call it to your leadership. Bring it to the table with your physician colleagues. And if you're a nurse in the room, act civilly to your colleagues and participate in a solution in your facility. Work with your societies. All right. Thank you so much, Charlotte Oyomi. Yes, Kevin. I can't beat Maya Angelou, <laughs> um, so I'm not going to try. There's lots of aspects of this subject that we haven't had time to yeah. cover today, yeah. and I hope folks will go to the, the, the various links that we've shown, particularly around why people behave right. like this and the factors underlying them, so I'm conscious of that. Yes. Um, I, I'd go back, really, to what I said at the start. What we permit, we promote, and leaders, individuals need to think that but leaders as well. So leaders and individuals need to model the sort of behaviours we expect, and they need not to permit behaviours which are unacceptable. Okay, thank you very much. Well, even with our extended time today, uh, we couldn't get to all of it, and I know there's a whole other program, at least on sort of the underlying factors and maybe what's contributing to all of this. I feel very aware of the fact also that kind of what all the tremendous changes going on in nursing as well and kind of how to get uh, to some of the root issues here. So we we uh, we hope we, though, have contributed further this conversation along, giving you something all of you uh, you can work with. I really want to extend uh, my sincere appreciation to our guests today and all of you who joined. Uh, please check out our website. If you click on the WIHI logo on the homepage of IHI.org, you'll find an audio download of this program uh, pretty much first thing tomorrow. Uh, you can also find it on iTunes. And do check out this wonderful resource page that Vicki Minden puts together. She uh, does a lot of research in advance and then captures a lot of the links and references that are made during the program. Again, you can download the chat when you log off. And if you're not on a computer today and just by phone, uh, you can email info at IHI.org and just say you want the chat from today's uh, WIHI, the July 1st program. On the next WIHI, that's on July 15th at 11 to 12 p.m., we're going to be Eastern time. We're going to be talking about women in maternal health from a global perspective. We have some fascinating, interesting stories from Ghana as well as New York City. 
and places in between. And we do hope you'll join us. There's information on the website right now about that. Um, the people who make WIHI possible are numerous. Some of them include Jonathan Small, Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Brittany McPhee, our intern who we had to say goodbye to. Somebody else is coming on board. Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, and Vicki Minden. And the uh, music that opens and closes WIHI original arrangements by Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Sa Pessoa on piano. It's my privilege. It continues to be my privilege. Well, and we're now into our second year with this program to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Thanks for your very energetic and smart participation today. Good day. <laughs>